Hey, it's PNN, and I'm Brooke Ines, your host. It's Sunday, November 22, 2020. Uh, on this day in 1963, John F. Kennedy was shot in Dealey Plaza, and uh, here we are. Um, I'm not going to talk about JFK tonight, uh, but I am going to suggest that uh, read this book. Read JFK, Why He Matters, uh, Why He Died and Why It Matters by James W. Douglas. And that's Douglas with two S's. I'm going to stick that in the show notes. Um, Very much worth your time uh, and probably the best only book that I would recommend on the the assassination. Uh, And it places why we are here today. So that's why it's important important to remember these things um tonight though tonight we've got uh i I did an interview um i don't do this a lot but i did an interview with jen perlman and i'd like to share that with you we discussed what's uh what's wrong with south florida um honestly there's there's a lot to talk about there we just focused on the political issues and um why the florida democratic party uh seems to uh struggle actually why they suck so bad um and also uh, how florida has created a new class of medical marijuana oligarchs so it's a wide-ranging discussion and uh stay tuned for that that'll be uh, right up around 7:25. also i have an interview that rick spizak did with Jen- dennis campbell and this week i will be playing the correct interview the one that i was supposed to play last week which is now incorrect but anyway i'm i'm playing catch up we're playing dennis campbell's interview that i was supposed to play last week we're playing it this week um because if i see a dennis campbell my uh in my studio here i am just going to hit the first one i see apparently and not even look at the date also janine moloff joins us 8 30 bottom of next hour as always with the justice report so we will um We will be seeing Janine a little bit later. Right now, it's a let's get into it. Let's let's do this quickly. Let's get into the beat. Uh, Things happened this week. Obama's memoir dropped, Promised Land. Uh, We learned a lot in that. We learned that uh, Obama decided early on in his first term that that he could use the Republicans as a all-purpose pocket tool to to, uh, just do whatever the hell he wanted that, that, uh, you know, we came out of, we came out of the, uh, two terms of George W. Bush's president going into severe economic troubles with the housing crash. And what that moment called for was bold action. And uh, we needed an FDR and we got a Hoover. Uh, And there's been a lot that is written about that. That's just not creative on my part at all. Uh, Obama took, took the easy way out every single time he could, he could, uh, on everything. It wasn't even a pick and choose thing. 
He he took the easy way out. He pleased donors. He did things for the corporate class, and uh, you know thumbed his nose at the voters, at the people, and actually used us as a weapon. You know, weaponized the voters um, in, in order to to further justify why he would you know bail out the banks, for instance, and you know screw the rest of us so that we lost our houses and, and everything during the during the crash. We expected him to get into office. We expected Barack Obama to get into office and live up to the promises of his campaign and Obama's campaign. Uh, he talked a lot about all kinds of amazing progressive things that that, that the that the government should be doing. And then as soon as he got into office, it was, it, it was like, I didn't say those things. Like what, what, whatever in the world would give you guys the idea that I was supposed to be some kind of progressive. I'm, I'm a regular old, you know, uh, garden variety Democrat. And uh, uh, you really shouldn't be expecting anything more. Um, and so we had, we had two terms of that. And a lot of people feel like that inaction is what opened the door, along with some other things, is what opened the door to uh, um, a right-wing, some would say a populist, but I'd, I, I think it was just, you know, people were looking for a circuit breaker. But that's what opened the door for Donald Trump. Um, that and the fact that Hillary Clinton ran a, a terrible campaign because, you know, she she felt like she could just kind of skate through it. And remember, Donald Trump was who she wanted to run against in the Pied Piper strategy that she talked about with her um, advisors uh, over the course of many emails that were uh, released through WikiLeaks. But um, we have a different situation now with Joe Biden coming into office because Joe Biden really didn't he didn't run a campaign really much of anything to say. Like there, there wasn't any kind of big progressive promises there. there there's no programmatic situation where any of us could, could, could point to a speech that he made or the way that he comported himself in a, in a debate. No one can point to anything and say, ah, that Joe Biden right there, that's the Joe Biden who's going to get big things done. Joe Biden ran pretty much as a not Donald Trump. That's 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 all. And, and people voted for him because he was the lesser of two evils. And uh, and, you know, I know that there are a there are at least two or three or four people who were extremely excited about a Joe Biden presidency. I'm pretty sure they're all going to be in the Joe Biden White House. So that's the extent of the excited people for Joe Biden presidency. The rest of us are just sort of like, well, at least he's not going to tweet from the, the toilet first thing in the morning or at 2 a.m. It's a low bar. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and, and that was pretty much that that was, you know, what people were looking for. They they were looking to not have a um, 
raving maniac in the White House. So so the bar has been lowered quite a bit. It's been lowered to Joe Biden's level, apparently, because, you know, Joe Biden ran for office quite a few times and was pretty much laughed off, you know, because he had the issues with plagiarism. And then he had uh, other issues with lying about his uh, <laughs> lying about his grade point average and pretty much lying about everything he possibly could. Um, and it, it, it is a certain point people were just like, uh, no, no, we don't. There are other people who are running and we're going to pay attention to them and we're not going to pay attention to you. But this year what happened was uh, Barack Obama stepped in and cleared the field for Joe Biden. Joe Biden got the one big vote that matters the most, and that was Barack Obama's. And, and, and that was it because Bernie Sanders didn't, didn't fight against that for whatever reason. You know, he, he's like, I like Joe Biden. Well, you know, if he liked Joe Biden so much, maybe he shouldn't have been running for president. You know, maybe, maybe uh, he, he, he just wasn't cut out for it for whatever reason. Um, Bernie Sanders decided to lay down and die when it was just between him and, and and Joe Biden. I don't know why that is. Now, a lot of people who are in the campaign actually say that that's just who Bernie Sanders is. He just was never going to, you know, fight against Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, here we are. Here we are facing, uh, you know, a nightmare on Pennsylvania Avenue, you know, part, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the, the, the sequel is in this franchise, I do not look back fondly, you might, uh, as you might imagine. I do not look back fondly on the Obama years. I don't even look back fondly on the Obama years in uh, relation to the Trump years. In terms of policy and in terms of, of uh, wars and the number of people killed, or deported. I mean, it's like yeah, one or the other. I mean, like nobody's done a damn thing for us. Yeah, that's the point. And what is particularly frightening right now, and this should be a moment that that activists, progress, people who call themselves progressives, people who call themselves leftists or lefties whatever you want to call yourself, maybe even liberals, maybe even liberals should should be aware of this. But Joe Biden's approach to government in all of his years in government has been all about the austerity. And right now, with 25 million people uh, who are out of work and all of the people who are affected by that, and by what I mean by that is that if if you're in a family that had two incomes and all of a sudden you have either one income or no incomes, then your life is drastically changed. And then the people in your uh, larger family, their lives are changed because, you know, you're going to need their help. You might need to move back in with mom and dad. You might need to uh, take on roommates like as an adult, which is a horrific thought, but, uh, you know, you might find yourself doubling or tripling up with, with other people. And just a side note, I'm kind of joking here because anybody who knows me knows that I had 
numerous roommates way into my 30s. Um, at one point, I had six other roommates, lived in a house with seven people. And uh, it was very rare until I was in my mid-30s that I didn't have roommates. So, I mean, that's not something... Well, I joke about it. It's it's not something that I actually think is terrible, but I think it's something that is economically not not ideal. So the reason why I had roommates so late in a life is I was doing artistic pursuits. My significant other was doing artistic pursuits, and you know these are the kinds of things that you have to do to make the ends meet when you don't have corporate jobs and you're not. Uh, you know, working for the absolute highest amount of money that you possibly can. So we kept our job responsibilities kind of low there for a while so that we could actually do the things that we wanted to do with either visual arts, music, writing, whatever it was. All right, what that sound means is that I am in editing and the reason why I'm doing this is because I want to throw in a trigger warning here. And I realized this after the broadcast last night that we needed to let people know that I'm getting ready to talk about issues pertaining to suicide. And I think that it's really important to, you know, drop a note in here and let people know, hey, look, if this is something that you don't want to don't want to hear or you think will trigger you, just fast forward about 10 minutes and I'll be past this. Thanks. I know people that I talk to uh, who don't, you know, live near me. I mean, I think a lot of us are just talking to people who don't live near us, you know, because we're, we're, we're talking to people online rather than in person. And in a way, that's kind of good because when you're talking to people online, you are you, you naturally have a more diverse set of voices. You know, it's it's not people. It doesn't have to be people who are similar to you in your socioeconomic, or cultural, or ethnic, or racial background. And you know, maybe maybe you don't even know you know, any of these details of, of of the people that you associate with online. But at any rate. In my social circle online this week, as people have been uh, looking at the prospects of not having any kind of stimulus until at least after January 20, after inauguration, uh, people, people are desperate right now, especially gig workers and people in the service industry. So, uh, so one of the things that that happened this this week was it was announced that uh, that there uh, that there wouldn't be any help for gig workers in in any kind of stimulus package that is being considered, and that Joe Biden was uh, was was specifically against, um, and Hakeem Jeffries was specifically against going for any kind of restitution or any kind of stimulus or, or extra money for you know, people who work for uh, Uber or, um, or TaskRabbit or people who are musicians or people who are freelance designers or freelance writers, uh, people who uh, do 1099s, uh, which is 
That's what I do. The You're not considered an employee and you're not considered a person when it comes to needing stimulus. So, so all of these people are not going to be, they're going to be left out. They're going to be left in the cold. At least that's what we learned this week. That's, that's the way people are thinking right now. Um, we, we're already, you know, we're in January. We're about two months away from, from the, uh, from inauguration. And if anything happens after Joe Biden is inaugurated, you know, it's going to be another month or so at least before anybody sees any money. And the moratorium on evictions has run out, will run out completely after December 31. Now, already people are having to go to eviction court. Already people are losing their um, the, the roof over their head. So people are, are already in dire straits. But what I started hearing in my social circles online this week was terrifying to me. And, I, and I'm going to share it with you because I think that I, I think that the people should be aware of this, that um, behind closed doors, People are literally talking about, well, they're talking about making a final exit. They're talking about the fears that they have about being a burden on their family. They're talking about the fears that they have about losing a roof over their head. They're talking about their inability to uh, provide for their children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I want to make clear that this is not a matter of mental illness. This isn't people who are who are who have a massive depression or are experiencing that kind of situation. This the way that I'm reading this and I've seen it in a couple different MID DM groups this week. The way that I'm interpreting it is the people are making a rational decision. And I recognize this because I've seen it in the chronic pain community. When people with chronic pain cannot access pain medicine, very often there will be people who take their own life. And it's a rational decision. It's a rational decision because they they don't want to be a burden on their family and they don't know how not to be a burden on their family. This is very similar to what I'm starting to hear uh, in these back channels. This is what I'm starting to hear behind the scenes. And I think it's important to bring this forward because y'all need to know that the approach that people are taking towards Joe Biden's cabinet and things that are getting ready to happen after Donald Trump leaves office. This is about real life. This is about real people and people who are literally contemplating checking out because they see absolutely no way to make it in this economy. So I want y'all to understand that this is not mental illness. It is rational problem solving that people are doing. They're afraid of becoming a burden, much like chronic pain community uh, patients. And um, it's economic in nature. And I got to say, I don't think 
that what I'm hearing is hyperbole from people. I know that the groups that I'm in, people kind of come together to share ideas, to problem solve, to, uh, to vent. And I know that I'm hearing quite a bit of venting, but what is troubling me about these conversations and you know if you're one of those people who who mentioned this behind the scenes know that you're only one of of a handful so it wasn't just one or two people I've I've heard this a couple of times this week and and that's why I'm bringing it to the fore you know I guess it's I guess it's because I care and I guess it's because I still somewhere inside of me I still feel like we could and should and ought to be able to fix this. You know, I mean, if we can give however many trillion dollars to corporations and big business, surely to God, we can uh, drop some checks on regular American families to make sure that they aren't thrown out of their houses by Christmas time. So my point here is that this is a perspective that you're not going to get on cable news. Cable news isn't going to, uh, you know, do man on the street interviews uh, where where people are going deep into what they're thinking and what they're feeling. And I think that it's necessary to have this kind of honest examination of where we're actually at because the material conditions that I experience are different from the material ex- conditions that you're probably experiencing and our together our material conditions are completely different from anybody who is appearing on MSNBC or CNN you know the, the people in those circles their material conditions are measures orders of magnitude uh, uh, better off economically than you and I. They don't have the same fears. They don't have, they don't feel the same kind of threat that we do right now. They might feel like, oh, isn't this terrible? My favorite restaurants are being closed. Or isn't this awful that uh, these office spaces are emptying out in our central business districts? That's the kind of, that's the way they're experiencing things. The way that we're experiencing things is very different. It is, can I keep doing this? The way that we experience this is, apparently, can I keep doing this? And that's what I heard this week. And that's what stopped me dead in my tracks. And that's why... I'm coming in to edit this and make sure that I am being crystal clear in uh, in the way that I present this. And once again, this is not people who have history of mental illness. This is not people who are experiencing depression from what is going on right now. These are people who are speaking rationally and logically looking at their situation and they're horrified at the idea of becoming a burden and some people just don't even have the opportunity or the or the potential to be, to, to even become a burden like 
like for myself, now I'm not in this kind of economic situation yet, but for myself, I don't have family that I could go back and live with. And I know for damn sure it's the, it's the case for a lot of people that even if you have family who are still around, that the uh, um, sociology of the family is such that that isn't an option, you know, whether, you know, there's trauma and abuse in the, in the relationship and that's just not something that you can go back to. I know a lot of adults deal with that and they just will not um, go back to their family of origin because they've, they've experienced far too much pain from them. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that, that people are dealing with as we go into Thanksgiving, as we go in, literally going in, to the time of year when we're supposed to be giving thanks, what I am hearing from from people that I care about, you know, that that you know that that, that I take the time to to uh, you know nurture relationships with, um, that these 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 are people who are looking around and thinking that they can't go on and. Uh, that's kind of heavy, you know. Um, what do you even do with that? How do you address it? I can't address it. I can't give $20 to a GoFundMe and make that better for anybody. What this requires is a governmental, a societal response. This is a societal level problem. We deserve our government, which we already pay taxes to, we deserve for them to pay us back, to make sure that we don't fall through the cracks. They made damn sure Boeing doesn't fall through the cracks. Well, what about what about us? What are we supposed to do? Is this like in the movie Children of Men? You know where it's where it's uh, you know, are they just going to start marketing quietus? You know. You decide when, remember, in the movie, there was the uh, suicide option. And they just so brilliantly, you know, did this, did this whole marketing campaign that was contained within the movie. The uh, the particular prescription drug was called Quietus. And they had these, uh, these uh, Cialis-like uh, advertisements on television of, uh, you know, couples walking off into the sunset. I can't watch a Cialis commercial, by the way, without thinking of Quietus because of Children of Men. And that's not the only way in which our current moment reflects Children of Men. Um, but that's a, that's a discussion for another time. So the point here is that news media is missing, almost entirely missing, what the story of the moment is right now. Like when history is written, you know, and they say that news is history's first draft. The story that we're experiencing right now on the ground, that is not, you're not going to get that on cable news. You're not getting those stories. You're not, you're not hearing from people who are absolutely freaking desperate you're hearing some aspirational stuff. You're hearing some excitement for a, a new administration. You're hearing lots of lingering anger towards, you know, Donald Trump and that, you know, 
clown show is going to just keep going on and on and on. What you're not hearing is what actual living people who are struggling right now, what, what their lives are like. And uh, so, you know, it is in that is the context. It is in that context in which I kind of looked under the hood of what could be in front of us in terms of uh, Joe Biden, any kind of policies that would help people, that could possibly help people. Uh, and, the, and, and, it, and that's not good news either, because that's not who Joe Biden is. Joe Biden has always been, he's always been a friend of austerity. He's, that's always been his first flex. There's a good article. I've put it up in the show notes. This is Megan Day in Jacobin Magazine. And it's the, the last thing the economy needs is Joe Biden's austerity. And this is a really short read, um, especially for a Jacobin piece. Go and have a look at it. But, uh, but she points out that Joe Biden has embraced right-wing doctrine since his whole career. Like that's absolutely what he's been about. And um, he, 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 as a matter of fact, is looking at Bruce Reed for, to, to head the office of management and budget. Bruce Reed was the executive director of the um, Bull Simpson commission, which very nearly cut social security in 2010. And, uh, and, Joe Biden had a lot to do with that um, cat food commission, with the uh, commission to cut social security. And people were alarmed. People were people like Diane Feinstein. Joe Biden was was giving so much away to Republicans that even Diane Feinstein, who who, you know, decided that uh, ACB is her very best friend now. Even Diane Feinstein was like, whoa, whoa, stop this. Um, as chief negotiator for um, Simpson Bowles Commission, uh, Joe Biden gave Mitch McConnell more or less whatever he wanted in the way of budget cuts. Uh, shocking and offending, even centrist Democrats like Dianne Feinstein, who expressed alarm at the size of Biden's concessions, and Harry Reid, who begged Obama not to let Biden negotiate with McConnell anymore. I mean, can you imagine that? Harry Reid, Harry Reid going to Obama and say, please don't send this guy back in here. He's giving away everything. At one point, Joe Biden even spontaneously offered $200 billion in cuts that the Republicans had not even asked for. So that's the kind of thing that we are, that's what we are looking at as Joe Biden comes into office. And sharing all of this with you, you know, from the from the despair that I'm seeing from from, you know, people that I talk to daily from from that to this to Joe Biden's background as an austerity hawk, the promise and the disappointment of the Obama administration, all of that is to hopefully kind of maybe wake you guys up. And if you weren't already of the mind that uh, that your voice needs to be heard, for God's sakes, right now, your voice needs to be heard more than ever. Um, I just want to remind you. Federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans. But I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time. If we should 
That's from 1995. That's Joe Biden talking on the floor of the Senate in 1995. The uh, when there was a, another. So here's a little bit more uh, from Megan Day. A crucial but overlooked detail in our nation's recent political history is that Biden was chosen as Barack Obama's running mate in 2008 in order to placate affluent voters and donors by softening Obama's largely erroneous and undeserved progressive image. Biden was able to serve this function because he had a reputation as a fiscal conservative, a deficit hawk, who was not willing, not just willing, but eager to knock down pillars of the U.S. welfare state. Now, Megan Day goes on, and she starts to talk a little bit about uh, the strategies that Joe Biden has used as a deficit hawk. And I want you guys to be on the lookout for this as we go into inauguration, because you're going to see this again. She says, as vice president, Biden lived up to his reputation. He responded to the Great Recession by continuing to hang hand ring about deficits. He was worried about welfare fraud and government waste. When Obama put Biden in charge of the $800 billion stimulus in 2009 that was intended to reboot the nation's economy, Biden focused most of his energy on making sure the money didn't fall into the wrong hands, that the money wasn't, quote, misspent, and that taxpayers weren't, quote, scammed by cunning, undeserving recipients. Over and over and over again, he's tried to cut Social Security and Medicare and and social services and hasn't been able to do it. Um, so ever, at least since 95, and it goes way back before then, uh, Joe Biden has taken the approach that if anything happens with economic stimulus, it is going to happen in a trickle-down manner. It is going to... The stimulus is going to be given to business, just like we saw with the Republicans earlier this year, and that it'll be the promise of jobs, and it'll be the promise of that money trickling down to other people. That's what we'll get. We'll get promises. We'll get excuses. And uh, and so all of that to say, right now is the time to be opposing these uh cabinet appointments. We do not need to see Bruce Reed heading the Office of Management and Budget. You know, we already saw the very conservative uh, uh, Cedric Richmond, who's a Democrat from Louisiana, heading the White House Office of Public Engagement. If you're not familiar with Louisiana, Louisiana is a big uh, oil state. And uh, and so people who are who are repping from Louisiana generally tend to be friends of fossil fuels, but this guy is—he's uh, a standout even amongst uh, you know these these oily, oil-friendly types. And uh, during his ten years in Congress, Richmond has received re- roughly three hundred and forty-one thousand dollars from donors in the oil and gas industry alone. It's the fifth highest amount amongst House Democrats. And uh, that includes political action committee donations from ExxonMobil, Entergy, Chevron, Phillips 66, and Valero Energy. Joe Biden isn't going to save the planet, right? You know, like, like he, he, he just did this appointment and the sunshine, the sunrise movement kids, 
did a viral video and, uh, and, you know, I just kind of feel bad for people right now at this point. I feel bad for people who are playing the Kabuki theater of now is Joe Biden's chance to burnish his legacy and do the important things that absolutely need to be done. And, and, you know, for, for once in his life, he can, you know, do blah, 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 blah. And I understand why they're doing that, you know, because they're, they're establishing the foundation that, uh, that here's what can be done. And then when he doesn't do it, they can point to that and they can say, and he didn't do it. But what's also happening at the same time is that people who are more low information kinds of people, which is most people, are seeing that, you know, canceling student debt is something that can be done on day one as part of a day one agenda as uh, the prospect has been laying out. Also check the show notes. I put the link to the day one agenda in there. Uh, David Dayan and the guys over at the everyone over at the Prospect Magazine has been working since 2019 on this day one agenda. This is not specific to Biden. This is specific to what can be done in the uh, from the executive office administratively to bring relief to people. And one of the things that is there that would be a fantastic anti-austerity measure is to cancel student debt. And I got to tell you, ever since that that idea has been floating around, I'm seeing like all of these people being like, oh, well, Joe Biden's going to cancel student debt. Joe Biden's not going to cancel student debt. It's never going to freaking happen. Or rather, it's never going to happen if we don't demand it. Just because it is out there you know, uh, being talked about on, on Twitter. I mean, to, God knows Joe Biden is not aware of Twitter. He's, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't see the interactions that we see. He's not part of that conversation. If this idea is going to be brought to Joe Biden, it's got to be brought to Joe Biden in the streets. All of these anti-austerity uh, messages that I'm talking about, all of that has got to be brought to Joe Biden well, from the grassroots and in no uncertain terms. We have to be strong on this and we have to make our demands clear, concise, loud. There can be no ambiguity or vagueness about our demands. We have got to have uh, stimulus. We have got to have money. We need we need checks, and we need them now. And we need to have the moratorium on evictions. Hey, look, you know, look at it like this: cutting people some checks, getting some money out there. That's just going to help landlords. I mean, if it's if it's trickle down economy you're after, if it's the 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 rentier economy that that you actually wanted to to buttress, then no better way than to actually give us money because that money is going to turn around and go right in to necessities like keeping a roof over our heads. And for a lot of people, that money is, is going to be absolutely critical to getting medical care as we go into the holiday season with uh, coronavirus just spiking all over the place. You've tried it the other way forever. You've done trickle-down economics and, uh, and and given big giveaways to, to corporations for 
50, 60 years. Now, just knock it off and let's let's get serious and let's really do something. We're finally rid of the crazy man who uh, who thinks that the pandemic it isn't a problem. You know, we have a guy who's going to wear a mask and and, uh, you know, be aware of science and all of that is good. But he also needs to be aware of economics and the kind of economics right now that are driving people to having these conversations behind the scenes where they're literally letting people know of their intent or their ideation, their ideation to check out before 2021. And the whole reason why I'm hearing this chatter is because of economics. And I understand it. I totally, I, I, I totally get it in it and it's breaking my heart. And, uh, and that makes me want to fight more. I don't know about you. I hope it makes you want to fight more because that's, um, that's what we've got right now. I want to tell you too, we're getting ready to, uh, turn over to, uh, interview with Jen Perlman and, we drop in. We kind of drop in in the middle because that seems like a good place to drop in. Enjoy this. Me and Jen just kind of riffing on what's going on with the party, with things in Florida, and uh, and just catching up, catching up with Jen. Here you go. I, I mean, the people are starting to catch on, and the jig is up. And they lost two seats, and they, people like Donna Shalala can sit there and say it has to do with the centrists or, or you know, that they were doing what they're supposed to be. I don't even know how she was describing it now. I'm not even, like, drawing a blank. But the bottom line is she lost a plus five Democratic seat to a Republican. That takes a special skill. And, you know, she's trying to say that, it's, that it was because of socialism that uh, – Right. The, the, right. this. And that, well, I think the question he asked her was, how is Nancy Pelosi going to navigate this with the different factions? And then and Donald Trump says, how she always has from this center, like that's where we need to be. And I think her losing proves the exact opposite of that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, do you think that there's something about the way that these two seats were lost in South Florida that – could have something to do with progressives just kind of going, eh, you know, I've, I, I, I'm just not, maybe I'll vote for the top of the ticket or, or, or whatever, but, you know, I'm just not that into these other people. Well, I mean, look, Florida is not exactly known for its progressive part of the Democratic Party. It is, it's, it's not the majority. In fact, what's so sad here, and one of the things that I find the saddest in Broward County is that our BYD, so that's our Broward Young Dems, right? Mm-hmm. You would think that the young people would be tend to be more progressive. No, Mm-mm. no. Our Broward Young Dems are the most centrist, neo-libby group you can imagine, and that's the young party establishment people. So all of the real progressive anything is coming from outside of the party. There is no pro- – there, there is very – small little snippets of people that are progressive in the Democratic Party, but they have zero influence over anything. Do you do you have the same here? It's the same local. Uh-huh. 
do you have any sense are are you doing anything within the party like showing up at these conventions or doing DEC stuff? Well, I was at the last one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. When I was during our campaign, Mm -hmm. I went to twice. I was in Tallahassee. Um, Once was for the, I forget the names of these conventions. Yeah. I mean, I've been to them. I've, I've seen the, the nonsense and the pomp and circumstance that is them. It's just ridiculous. Uh, You know, again, it was sponsored by big sugar. So I'm only going to take that so seriously. That is not a party of people that want to serve the common good. It just isn't. And so and so when you're somebody like me and you're stuck in a closed primary state, you have to be part of that. There's no other way. Mm-hmm. But I by no means find them to represent anything that I stand for. And I think that they're going to keep getting their asses handed to them. And quite honestly, I hope they do. Because, you know, if you're if you're not going to listen to people and serve your constituents, you don't deserve to be there. I've had the uh, Bernie or Bust author, uh, Victor Tiffany, on the show a bit, and uh, he kind of comes on to uh, do reactions of certain stories. And I got to say, in 2016, uh, let me put it this way, my feelings about Bernie or Bust uh, have hardened since 2016. I wasn't quite ready to, you know, have that that uh, kind of scorched earth feeling deep down inside. Yeah. But this year, after what happened in the primary, it was just sort of like, nah, no, nah, I can't. No, it was one of the. It was a hard decision for me. I ultimately did vote for Joe. Um, fortunately for me, even though I kind of regret that choice, it didn't make a bit of difference because I'm in Florida anyway, and it went red, so it doesn't even matter. But, but the reality is for me, policy wise, they're six to one, half a dozen of the other. Um, Joe Biden has been somebody I've been watching for most of my life being on the wrong side of history. He is not somebody that, and, and I also have been very clear that my voting for him in no way reduces the amount, the amount of accountability I think he has for all of his poor policy choices and very credible sexual assault allegations um, that he must be held accountable for. What really freaked me out finally the last straw for me was when Trump was very like he wouldn't support the peaceful transition of power. And that to me was just very sort of uh, personally authoritatively kind of creepy in a way that I don't find Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and I also figured from from my perspective, at a minimum, that Joe Biden would get us back into the Paris Climate Agreement. And, and, if, and if that is the bare minimum, that's still better than where we are right now. So that was sort of my, my thought. But again, I was certainly not proud of this choice. Like, it, I, I, I was not shaming anybody. I don't feel good about it. I'm still not convinced I did the, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not confident about that choice by any stretch. I think that that is a really interesting way to put it, and I think that a lot of people are like that because I don't feel I don't feel comfortable in my choice. I know my husband doesn't feel comfortable in his choice. I know that our extended yeah. families do. Nobody liked who they had to vote for this year at no. all. No. Now, 16, uh, you know, I voted green. Um, I voted for Jill Stein. I have zero regrets about that. 
Um, I, I'm perfectly content with that choice. I, I wish I felt as good about my choice this year as I did in 16, but I don't, and it is what it is. But again, my vote didn't even matter anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I've worked on local campaigns enough to know that where we can really have an impact is with uh, uh, county level and city level and, you know, some of these smaller races. So, and there was, in Central Florida, a couple of different things that I really wanted to um, get my voice down on. There were a, a couple of measures that, that had to do with environmental protection and, uh, and, uh, and sprawl. And those are, those are, those are easier to win. Like they're easy to win because you've got yeah. the ge- geographic region of people who are naturally invested in this issue. And that makes for a natural built in audience for that for that ballot measure yeah well it's always your vote always carries more weight locally Mm -hmm. so we had some pretty good local successes here as well for um commission races oh i like uh do you do you have any names of anybody off the top of your head that uh that you liked well yeah we've got tamara we've got tamara james is now the mayor of dania beach and she's with, she's a great commissioner, and now she's going to be a great mayor, and that's a she's a great ally. Also, in the in Weston, uh, the new mayor is Peggy Brown, who is an ally to me, an ally of of our campaign. And um, I I'd like to let if I could tell you this: that's supposed to be a nonpartisan race, but yet the Democratic Party found it necessary to get behind who they perceived was the Democratic candidate, even though it was a nonpartisan race. And they pushed him and pushed him and pushed him, and he lost. And he lost to Peggy, who is somebody who would probably be, you know, more conservative. But again, this is a Western County, you know, commission. It's nonpartisan. And she does not have a horse in the establishment race, like the guy who was a Democrat who was turning out of our state house and now wants to go right into the Western City Commission. And all the Dems just jump right behind him. He's like 80 years old. Yeah, let's put him in another position and rotate him through the commission. That's all these people do is turn out of the state house and rotate through our commissions. And uh, we finally have a couple of people that aren't that. So um, I was pleased. Wow. That is, um, you you, you nailed it too with the, uh, with the revolving door, with the state ledge and and local. It's ridiculous. Broward is so incestuous. It's, it's, there's people on, there's a woman on our county commission that she was, um, I want to say my state legislator when I lived, grew up in Dade like a hundred years ago. And now she's a county commissioner in Broward. All these people do is rotate positions when they turn out and protect each other's power so that they don't let new people in. Yep, and it's quite disgusting. And 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 Debbie is to a large part the head of that snake. Aha! Uh-huh. I've been wondering. Do and you? That's wh- why it needs to get cut off. <laughs> that, that's that's a um, hmm. Debbie Wasserman Schultz ha, has not uh, raised herself up in the uh, profile of the party statewide or nationally. 
since all of that stuff happened in 2016. Does it feel like to you? Well, even before that, you know she lost over 1,000 seats across the country when she was the chair of the DNC. Right. Prior to them cheating Bernie, she did a horrible job. Even if you take the cheating off the table, when Obama was president and she was the chair of the DNC, they lost more than 1,000 seats. Yep, 1,031. Uh, Yeah. Exactly. That's a pretty big thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I wouldn't call that a successful tenure. Do you have any sense if she's still holding power within uh, South Florida politics or the Oh, 100%. Not only South Florida, the state. The state. Debbie controls the state. Debbie controls the Florida Democratic Party. She's very much in control of what happens at the county and the local levels, but she is also who's pulling the strings at the state. I have no doubt. So this this decision by the state party to not openly endorse uh, the minimum wage increase and not campaign on it, uh, uh-huh. uh, Ana Escamani, the state legislator from Orlando City, has done a really good job calling out the party, which I was like, whoa, you're actually – literally calling out the party good for you it looks like she's gonna take a run at governor in uh 2022 so so this next cycle coming up and this is the kind of energy that i think uh i I think that the state really needs and it'll be interesting to watch and see if the party plays dirty with her because you know, because I think it'll I be a mascot. Get behind Nikki Freed. Oh my God! Oh my God! I think it's going to be a mascot situation. Do. Yep, they're going to get behind Nikki Freed. So that yeah. that's kind of like this uh, this weird John Morgan thing that that happened. John Morgan came out and uh, and and had some really harsh words for Nikki Freed because Nikki Freed didn't get behind the the minimum wage increase, and he said your time is up or something like that. It was like, you know, you're, you're not going to go anywhere in, in for the Florida politics. And I kind of sensed with Anna that there was a little bit of, uh, there's a little bit of uh, maybe coming over to his, his side. You, you know, it's, it sounds like, like John Morgan might get behind an Anna run, which would be just wild. It would be good, but yet it's also bad because those are strings that you don't necessarily want either. And the thing that I've learned from watching Florida politics is that Morgan's about Morgan. Now, the whole thing about whatever his beef is with Nikki Free probably comes down to the pot legislation. I mean, who knows what, what goes on there? But Morgan was the one who was promoting the ballot measure um, that for legalizing cannabis that would be bad, not the good ballot measure, the bad ballot measure, meaning he was behind the one that doesn't allow for home grow. Mm. That's an important thing. That's a very important thing because the, the marijuana initiative that he gets behind is the one that will allow a very small group of people to basically be the, the oligarchy of Florida cannabis. And he did it. everybody else out. He did a very carefully worded interview recently where he was re- revising some of that history and trying to blame Ben Polera, the, uh, the, the, the consultant who was in, in charge of the, the initiative, uh, who he hired. Uh, he was trying to blame Ben Polera for that, um, 
for the difference in those two kinds of of models and say and and so is yeah, I don't buy it. I don't buy it either because everyone knew from the start that that was a John Morgan thing. Yeah, no, I don't buy it. And and especially someone who has been so active in that legislation and in that industry from its very inception in this state is going to play stupid like that, like he didn't know, and blame uh, some politico, you know, wordsmith. I don't think so. No, John Morgan. No, that he would no because he's just not that stupid. <laughs> so no, because if I know the difference, then he knows the difference. John Morgan's a lot of things. He is not stupid. Exactly. He's sharp. So you don't get to play stupid when, exactly. So no. And so the fact that he's not backing Nikki Freed is very interesting. Now, if he were to now get behind Anna, that's definitely a sign that he sees her as potentially able to not to take out Nikki. So he obviously has a vendetta against Nikki Freed. If he gets behind someone else, that's what he's going to be doing. Because he knows that's who the party likes is Nikki. Wow. You know, and it's a darling of the Democratic Party. It, yeah, because our only statewide office holder uh-huh. holds the uh, Agriculture Commission uh, seat, which is just so sad. I mean, come on, you guys. <laughs> we no, can do pitiful. better. It's absolutely pitiful. But that, but the fact that she is so like centrist and is kind of a corporatist is what does give her a certain amount of cross appeal in a state that is pretty red mm-hmm. you know and i actually don't really have a particular problem with nikki Fried. like i don't like her i mean i don't think she's doing any she's not like you know making any real progress for us or anything but i don't have a particular problem with her mm-hmm. but and at this point quite honestly our bar is so low in this state that it doesn't i mean i, I stopped thinking about governors a long time ago i mean we had two we had two terms of voldemort and now we've got this guy who is just, by comparison, not even that horrible. Yeah, very low standards. You know, I think that I think that that's easy to forget for people who don't live in Florida. Like, if you didn't have the experience of living through two terms of, of Rick Scott, that Rick DeSantis exactly. to us is just sort of like dumb and inoffensive. Yes. Yes. I've said this to people before. I'm like, you have no idea. DeSantis sucks, but God, by our, by, I'm telling you, it's a step up for us. Because to me, Rick Scott is just evil. Oh, yeah. DeSantis is just a puppet for Trump. Like, he's just a placeholder. Rick Scott, I believe, has like a nefarious agenda. Absolutely. No, no, he's, he's, you, there's no soul behind those eyes. Exactly. <laughs> I don't new. find that with Ron DeSantis. He's just, he's just, you know what? He's just a jerk. Mm-hmm. Like he's just, he's just, he's like Trump. Mm-hmm. He's just like sort of like the emperor has no clothes, just sort of standing there with this like false sense of power. It's, it's sort of sad, but I don't find him to, I don't think, I don't find Ron DeSantis to be nefarious. I wanted to ask you, you know, the the, the party since since the uh, drubbing and the shellacking has been having this big conversation about messaging, like as if there's you, you know some the magic words that have to be said and and other magic words that that shouldn't be said, uh, and clearly socialism is the magic word they don't want to be they they don't want to have spoken. Uh, do you do yeah. you buy that? Do you think messaging is that important? Um, this is, I think it's important to them because they have no substance. 
I think that for people who have substance, that the messaging isn't as important because you're actually offering substance. So, for example, if I'm offering you single-payer health care so everyone gets health care, it doesn't really matter what the messaging is. I'm giving you health care. But the Democratic Party doesn't want to actually do anything. So all they have is manipulating messaging. That's all they have. So, yeah, for them, it's very important. I always said from the beginning that Bernie should have never used the term democratic socialist. Um, first of all, he's not one. Okay, like that that's the first and foremost, because if he were, then I'd say, yeah, you got to own it, whatever you are. But he isn't one. But he used that term. What he meant is he's a social Democrat. Mm -hmm. And those things are very different. But so then the term socialism, of course, took off like, you know, like a rocket and is such a good thing to use for fear mongering, especially in Florida. And you have a large Cuban population and large Venezuelan population in places that, you know, they use that. As fear, you know, it's all fear tactics. So, you know, for the Democratic Party, yes, messaging is important because all they have is is basically platitudes and identity. They're very into identity politics. Yeah, well, they That's see that as a that. shortcut. There was a there well, was an, it's all they have. Uh huh. You're right. There was an idea a few years ago, and everybody used to talk about the rising American electorate. And the idea there was that uh, um, Puerto Rican diaspora and uh, other Central South American diaspora for, of uh, uh, Latino voters would in, ensure Democratic majorities in the state of Florida in perpetuity. It was the biggest magical yeah. thinking bullshit I've ever heard in my life. And it has been wild and and also unsurprising to see that those Hispanic voters or the Latino vote has largely gone for Trump, you know, at least this time. Yeah, more so than in 16. More so than in 16. Hillary did better than Biden did with the Latinos down here. Trump's percentage went up amongst Latinos from 16 to now. Not down. His percentage went up. And, you know, look, there's a lot of factors to this. I, I, I was looking at that article, and there's, there's so many factors. But to me, what it all comes down to is the Democrats don't offer any policy of substance. And it's very easy to lump all Latino people into one category. And if you want to talk about a group that is so not a monolith, mm -hmm. it's them. In fact, I've heard from many people that they don't even like to be referred to as Latino or Latinx. Mm -hmm. That sort of like minimizes whatever it is that their, their ethnicity is. And the fact that the Democrats see them as just a target audience is very telling as to why they're not capable of winning that target audience. Because they don't speak to them in any way that they would want to be spoken to. I used to organize. Not dealing with their issues. No, absolutely not. I used to organize in the small business community here in Central Florida, and, and it, there is no better way, actually, to get a sense of how different these ethnicities are by, than, than, like, driving down Cimarron and, and uh, you know, you, you, you stop at a few businesses that are Colombian-owned and then a few businesses that are owned by, by um, people from Brazil and then Venezuela and Puerto Rico and so on and so forth. Yep. And they have completely different uh, issues and interests yep. and, 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 and political needs. 
Yep. But I'll tell you what all of them do like, at least three quarters of them. They all want Medicare for all. So it's like if the Democrats really wanted to win, they would have by a landslide. And I'm talking all their seats, not just Biden. And he underperformed. He underperformed. He should have won by a landslide. Like the fact that it was even close is way speaks way more volumes about the Democrats than it does about Trump. And it's unfortunate that so many people in the party aren't listening to what that's saying, but it's speaking very loudly. That is so true. How close it even was. Like that's just, we, we have a crazy, basically psychopathic narcissist sitting in the white house and the Democrats underperformed in elections. Like, it really does speak as to how feckless the Democrats are. Mm-hmm. And they just keep want to keep going like they're doing anything. <laughs> what do you think is going on in South Florida? Is it is it such a closed system that, that people have a chan- don't have a chance to uh, jump in and, 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 yeah. and get traction? Is that it? Yeah, it's, it's a very closed club. It's very protected by people like Debbie, and they keep it very close. So we we ran a campaign for almost two years, and not one of the Democratic clubs even hosted a a panel discussion or even acknowledged our race. Now, um, I am also with the League of Women Voters. They had panels for the state attorney, for the sheriff. They held panels for everything, but they're not holding any sort of panel for somebody challenging Debbie because she won't allow it. So she's she's in control. They're all scared of her. And none of the organizations are willing to step out. I mean, and just so you know, like how ridiculous it is, for example, she'll brag about getting a Sierra Club endorsement. Right. But the Sierra Club supports candidates that take fossil fuel money. So what does that say about them? Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's not a real environmental organization anymore, but people don't know that. So she'll keep touting that out and she'll keep getting those endorsements and they'll keep the media quiet locally. Nobody really would talk to us. None of the clubs would even acknowledge our race was happening. And she keeps everybody quiet. That way she doesn't have to even debate or talk about anything. And they're all scared of her. Did you were there things that you didn't expect? Like like was that unexpected for you? Like how how they closed wagons around uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz? No, 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 no. I guess what really what really was sort of um, just kind of I guess eye opening was the actual depth of how filthy it is and and how the money gets funneled through and it, it's really quite disgusting and they cheat in so many different ways. Um, not the least of which is they put out illegal slate cards. Um, and I'm pretty sure that she's the one who financed that she's the only one on that slate card that had any money. So, uh, I think that that's how it works. You know, Debbie gives people like Dale Holness, who's on our commission and was Broward County mayor and she gives him money and he prints up the cards and she buys the vote in the black community and they all just keep each other in their comfortable positions. They all just sort of, like a giant circle jerk really do you see movement for people's party or 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 the greens getting any traction down there I not feel like, here uh-huh. no and no and we'll be the last place now i support both of those things i support this is what i i support any and all means 
to advance the policies that I think are in the best interest of the collective. So I will support third parties. I'll support within the party. I'll do, like, I'm, I feel like we need to be attacking from every angle. I do think that given how behind Florida is and how we do have such close primaries and such gerrymandered districts and like, we're going to be the last people to get things like ranked choice voting. We're, we're, we're going to be the last people to open up our primaries. Mm-hmm. But I do support third parties. Yeah, I think that there's some some really good organizing in in some places with the with the third parties, and definitely with the organizations like uh, DSA has has done some good turnout projects and uh, Justice Dem. No, DSA is great. They have a really good infrastructure, but they seem to be working basically still. Um, not as any sort of third party competition to the Democratic Party. They're just sort of operating in their own lane. Um, the Greens, I think, have not been able to get out of their own way ever. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate, but they can't. They had an opportunity to have Jesse Ventura and they didn't do that. So that's a sign to me that they're, they weren't really thinking about winning this year. <laughs> so I, I don't know. But, but Florida is just very delayed. It really is here. We're backwards. Is there anything that you are uh, excited about or are we all kind of hunkered down and, uh, you know, kind of looking from under the covers to as Biden takes office and just sort of hoping it's not as ugly as we think it's going to be? I wish I didn't think it was going to be as ugly as I think it's going to be. Look, when I did make that vote, when I did vote for Biden, and I certainly didn't feel good about it, I did that with with making a very conscious decision to myself that this means I, I this only means I have to fight harder, not only to compensate for the amount of neolibs that are going to go back to brunch, but also because this is almost like this false sense of security, even for everybody thinking that oh things are fine now we're all back to civility and decorum. And in the meantime, we're still having a military industrial complex. Fossil fuel industry is running rampant and buying off our legislators and nothing has changed. So what I am hopeful about is that our movement, my little project, has really gotten some good momentum and is taking off. And every person that joins in that, whether it's volunteering with our volunteer organization or being, you know, listening to the podcast, it's all just spreading information and building up a coalition. And I do feel somewhat motivated for that. Like, I I do feel like we're making some progress. Well, tell our listeners how people can get involved with your organization, your volunteer network. Okay, so we what happened is our campaign ended, but my volunteers, who we called GenCorps, they all wanted to keep going because everybody on my campaign, all our volunteers, it was, we, we did community service. Like, yeah, there was canvassing too, but we did a lot of service. And so that's still going to be going. We do things like mobile school pantry and different um, local cleanups and different things locally. And that's called GenCorp. And if people are interested, they can go to my, the website is generational with a J generationalchange.com. And that's also the name of our podcast, which is available on Spotify and iTunes, Generational Change. And you can follow what we're doing on Twitter and Instagram at GenFL23. But if somebody's interested in coming out and doing it, like we have three different days of distributions we're going to be doing for Thanksgiving with the mobile school pantry. Um, So there's always opportunities to get involved. 
And we have a big community garden project that we're working to get started, and, and hopefully that'll get up and running pretty quick. And I heard we you have all sorts of fun things going on. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for taking the time Absolutely. to talk me through some of this. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and uh, oh, thank you. Have we met in person? Have, did we meet at something? And I just can't remember. I don't think so because I haven't uh, I haven't stepped foot in uh, party stuff or or you know campaign stuff outside of the stuff that I was working on. I haven't done that in ages just because it wears me out. So it's been forever since you know, I've been to a convention. And the people suck. Mm-hmm. You right. know, they suck. I, I would never go. And actually, one of my biggest things about campaigning is doing it outside the box and not from within. Mm-hmm. And we were pretty successful doing it that way because the party's not going to do anything to help us. They're just not. They're going to work against us. They work for Debbie. So to even go to them and think you're going to get any help, you're better off just going completely around them. Oh, absolutely. And that's really more of our strategy because they're not, they're feckless. I know I've seen this up close and personal with my own two eyes, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have as well. Right. Right. Well, what do you think? What do people think happened to Andrew Gillum? Because I'm pretty sure I know what happened to Andrew Gillum. Oh. But it's like that's all party establishment. That's all party establishment. That's exactly what they do. They pretend that they're the resistance, but they're really not. I think he was sabotaged. I do. I think he was sabotaged. I think that they knew that his numbers would go down. I think that they didn't care. And look, you know, when you come down to South Florida, if you, you know, he won because the progressives came out for him in the primary. And then he switched over to a corporatist, centrist, um, DC bubble consultant campaign for the general. And that just didn't work. Mm -hmm. And I think they knew it wouldn't work. His messaging on uh, Nicaragua and, and Central and South America was straight off of the the, the uh, messaging points that the party was using, and so yeah. completely inappropriate for a, a governor's race. You know, who you don't need to yeah. wade into that sort of thing. Seems like it was it no. was designed to uh, cleave away the progressives who were supporting him. Yeah, it was. I I don't think they wanted him to win because I know this: you can't win on a progressive in a progressive primary and then turn around and be out campaigning with Hillary Clinton, Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Michael Bloomberg and think that's going to work. No, 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 no. Because all of the progressives that came out and and led him to be able to beat Gwen Graham, they all went back into their little homes and were like, no, thank you. They didn't come out for him in the general. Because I didn't come out for him in the general either. Wow, good point. You come down with Michael Bloomberg and Hillary Clinton? Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. You know, I forget that because I had tuned out because of the um, Venezuela stuff. <laughs> I was like, you know, oh my God, if you're going to, you know, sing sing the tune of the of the party people like that, like, and it was so obvious that he he didn't really know what he was talking about. He was just saying what was in front of him. That I I just started to tune him out yeah. after that. Right. Well, once you get in with those people, you cannot be trusted anymore. Even if you have the best intentions, if those are the people that are calling the shots and, and leading you on policy, then you you are not for the people anymore. You are now compromised. And that's when I saw that Andrew Gillum had been compromised. So once you're compromised, then there's no point. 
Wow. So, wow. Well, Jen, thank I you. I think whatever our party touches turns to poop. It, it's it's <laughs> so sad. It is absolutely so sad because there's so many, there's really, really good people all throughout the state who go to their damn DEC meetings and their women's caucus and they're this and that, and they really expect things to change. And they really think that... that but they're not doing anything. I know. They don't do anything. I know. They just keep try to keep blue people in seats. And I, and I go, look, I'm on the board of our women's club in Broward, and... It, it's like I say to them all the time, it's like, you guys, all you're, all we're doing is cheerleading for somebody that has a D next to their name, but that doesn't do anything for people. Mm-hmm. There has to be policy. So that's why, like, they'll all take shit all the time for talking against the party. But I don't have party loyalty. I care about policies, not parties. Now, if, if they want to start talking about the policies I support, then I'll start supporting that's right. It's really That's not the, complicated. It, it isn't. It's it, it, and I think it's um, the the no permanent friends, no permanent enemies uh, orientation is. It's not so much a strategy as a description of the way that people just naturally operate. It is. Yeah. I'm not going to get. You know, I don't. I don't have allegiance to person or party. What is that? That's a cult. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like my my purpose is policies that will help the collective. Now, I'll go to a Republican meeting, and I do go to Republican meetings. I met a group of them from, we were all protesting drilling in the Everglades. So if they want to work on policies that are anti-fracking, I'll work with whoever. I don't care what party you're with. You want to work with me on getting everybody health care? I don't care what party you're in. So, so that's the problem, and the Democrats don't like that. They, they're just all about party, party, party. And they don't like that I hang out with Republicans and do all sorts of stuff. Like I'll hang out with anybody if it's going to help me get health care for everyone. But, you know, they don't have a problem when, when uh, centrist Democrats are hanging out with Republicans. Because Nikki Freed, no. you know, it, there's a lot of Republican heterodoxy that, that, that is allowed that it, it, as long as it happens on the, on the side where um, where donors are kept happy, essentially. Well, then that's called that's called bipartisanship, and that they do like. When it serves the corporate donors, it's bipartisanship. When it talks about populism serving the people, that's you're not being loyal to your party. Yep. So it, it, it's it's just all nonsense. So I I ignore them. They generally don't like me, which is not surprising. I figured they wouldn't. You know, I I wasn't there to make friends, so that was okay. Um, but yeah, they're never going to like me. Mm-hmm. Well, we're not you know, here to make that, friends. I accept that. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not. I have friends, and I don't need new ones. That's right. We're we're here to get something done. We people are people have material needs, and and I'm so glad that you're uh, carrying on with the uh, um, generation change and uh, doing the podcast and just keep keeping on because you know this is. This is what we can do, at, at least for yeah. for now, in the interim. Yeah. Well, I'm working on a book. I need to get back to working on it, where I'm basically, it's almost going to be like insurgent campaign, a how-to book, a how-to manual for insurgent campaigns working within the party establishment. Oh, um, wow. And just basically going over what my experience is, the kind of ducks you need to have in a row, the people that are going to be interfering. And by the way, I'll name names. I don't care anymore. 
like I'll, I'll call out everybody who's an interference in progress by name because these are actual real people. So, yeah, I'm, I'm working on that, too, which I think will be an interesting little tell-all. Wow, <laughs> I can't wait. I will read the hell out of that. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, and we've got people that are just impediments. Like, imagine somebody like Mitch McConnell, right, but on your local level. Like somebody who is just clearly an impediment to anything good happening. And those are the people that need to be called out at every single level because until we get rid of those people, and I do mean figuratively, not literally, although I don't think I'd shed a tear over Mitch McConnell, but like until those people are gone, we're going to just keep circling a drain. And those people exist federal, state, local, they exist everywhere. And that's what we're trying to eliminate locally. And I will be calling names. So, yeah, fantastic. Well, Jim Perlman, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. And I I look forward to don't be a stranger and 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 let's uh, let's keep keep our eyes on things and uh, and and check in and do really reality checks with each other from time to time. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Thanks, Brooke. Thank you so much. Okay. bye bye. All right. Bye. And now I bring you Dennis Campbell in conversation with Rick Spuzak. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune to bring you one of the world's premier political commentators, international journalist, and raconteur, Mr. Dennis Campbell, from just off the Atlantic coast in Wales. Dennis, yeah, well, just off. <laughs> Well, how do you like this graceful transition from uh, a candidate to president-elect? Of course, uh, it's gone over great and uh, full support (laughs) of the uh, Trump administration. Uh, Yeah. What what are your first thoughts, sir, on this this auspicious transition uh, of peaceful democratic principles? I'm not sure that they're uh, suitable for work or for broadcast. <laughs> um, you know, it's, and, and the media has done a pretty good job of showing the hypocrisy of the Republicans going back just a simple four years ago when we had, you know, them all standing up and saying, look, he won and, uh, you know, it's been declared. And I loved especially this week when they, we're all saying, you know, a media outlet cannot call an election result or whatever. Until, of course, they called Alaska and North Carolina for Donald Trump. Then they were all saying, look, he's got a chance. He's coming back. Uh, the fact is, he's won for 20 in court cases. Uh, and it's just ridiculous. He's just embarrassing himself right now. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's embarrassing to watch because... You, you find yourself looking at this and uh, wondering, you know, at what point in time is he actually going to say, you know, that's it, I'm done, and uh, move on from there. And you just realize he is absolutely incapable as, uh, of ever admitting something was wrong or something was, was, was not going to be done. So, I mean, it's it's just one of those things where you, you find yourself thinking, okay, uh, anybody else 
in that circumstance, in that situation, would uh, you know look at it and say, okay, um, I lost, and congratulations. Uh, and and now you see this national security threat, and it is a legitimate national security threat. I mean, under the best of circumstances, it's only 71 or 72 days. Under the worst of circumstances, you know, uh, and and. That's under the worst of circumstances, excuse me. Under the best of circumstances, it could be as many as 78 days, depending on when Election Day falls. Uh, we're now 67 or 66 days away from Inauguration Day, and he may get his first presidential daily briefing, which is more than Trump gets, because Trump doesn't even listen to him anymore. Uh, I read an item this morning that said, He's done absolutely nothing on COVID in five months. He's not even had a briefing from the Coronavirus Task Force. And he's basically abdicated all presidential responsibility uh, over the last whatever number of months it is because of the election. And now he's been to all of these uh, rallies and 130 members of the United States Secret Service, the main protection detail for the president, have been decimated by coronavirus or are in quarantine because of these rallies where they've been exposed to people with coronavirus. So it's the height of, of hubris, it's the height of arrogance, it's the height of irresponsibility, and yet we're number one. none of the Republicans have stepped forward to say, stop it. You know, I mean, Langford said, yeah, he should get the briefings, and then immediately said, no, no, I'm not declaring that he won because of the fear of a tweet from Donald Trump. And, you know, he's violated Twitter's terms of service so often that on the 20th of January, he should be booted the hell off of it. Um, and now we realize, again in the headlines this morning, and again, we're talking on Sunday morning, that the Mercer family is behind this new right-wing uh, 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 network, for lack of a better word, to replace Twitter called Parler. You know, and it's now got 10 million members and it has absolutely no filters or no rules or moderation. And these Mercers are the ones that funded Cambridge Analytica, that funded Steve Bannon, that put Kellyanne Conway in the White House, and these are just despicable people. Forget deplorable, these are despicable human beings. They are at they, you know they are they are the the single cell amoeba below pond scum. That's how bad these guys are, and yet they're getting lots of airtime. I mean, your million MAGA march yesterday in Washington D.C. by my estimation had maybe five to seven thousand people in the plaza there. It was a few MAGA you know, short. Yeah, a few MAGA short of a million, and and, a, and and several MAGA short of a full brain in that crowd. Um, you know, it, it's just somebody sent me a photograph of a, of a woman whose car was covered in Trump paraphernalia and she stepped out of it in flag clothing carrying an American flag and somebody asked me what is your reaction I said well at some point well first of all I said they walk among us and at some point in her life, they bred. Because this was a woman well into her 70s or 80s, and I'm thinking, my God, what does the future hold? 
Now, they were talking about the reasons that, that Biden won in Georgia because of the influx of population. And in Mississippi, the huge brain drain that they're having there, even at the university and other levels, because there's no sense being spoken or made anywhere. And I just don't know what to do or what to say. Uh, also, I wanted you to address, uh, we hear talk that uh, that cabinet choices are well underway uh, and that uh, uh, Mr. Uh, President-elect Biden has already selected a panel to begin researching and dealing with this uh, we see them clearly hitting the ground running. Do you think that uh, this uh, soon-to-be former president is going to continue his rallies right up through uh, the transition? He might. I don't think he will because I think he's 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 realized he's he's probably going to be doing a lot of them afterwards. He's probably going to declare that he's going to run again in 2024, but he's going to have major league legal problems. And nobody is going to want to represent him. They're not going to touch him with a barge pole because he doesn't pay his bills. He has a horrible reputation as a client of not listening to the advice of his attorneys. And they're just going to say, you know what? Go out there and hang yourself, Donnie. You want to testify? Lots of luck because they're in a judge out there, even if you appointed them, <laughs> you know, that's going to let this crap fly. And you look at the decisions and the, the way they've come across, it's like, no, you know, one judge, federal judge, I can't remember what state it was in, said, oh, I think it was Arizona. They said, well, you know, what's the standing for this case? And they said, well, we have evidence. And said, well, where's the evidence? And they said, well, as soon as we get it, we will bring it to you. And he bounced them out on their ear. And this is the way all of these cases has gone. They're claiming they won one, which was basically allowing them to go from being 20 feet away because of COVID to six feet away. And that's their one big win in 20 cases. And you say, this is, this is insane. Um, people that want to survive have got a real dilemma. They don't want to find themselves in the crosshairs of his Twitter feed. And if they come out and say Biden won, they're gonna you know, run squarely into that. But they also, have this huge issue of, well, this is a national security issue, and they're, in theory, the partner of national security, and they're not allowing the incoming president and his team to get there. And the, the one thing that I find hysterical that nobody is talking about, that they should be talking about, a few weeks ago, he wrote and uh, he signed an executive order basically removing all protections of the civil service from anybody in any federal agency, including, you know, the rights to protest and sue and do all these things. And everybody seems to have forgotten that. And instead, the outrage machine is getting all pissed off and bent out of shape because he's putting people into key positions that are civil service positions in the Pentagon and all of these agencies. And... I'm just waiting because on day one, he can fire, Joe Biden can fire every one of these appointees under the executive order signed by President Trump. And then turn around once he's clean house, a couple, three days later, and reinstate and cancel and void the executive order by Trump. 
And I've not heard one commentator pick up on that anywhere. And I think that that's going to be the silver bullet for him going forward because they're not going to be able to do anything once he says, hey, look, you know, my predecessor took these away. So because he took them away, we're going to get rid of all of this trash. We're going to throw it out. And, you know, a lot of people talked about Ron Klain this week, but I don't think they understand what a serious person this guy is. I mean, he... I wanted to see Pete Buttigieg become his chief of staff, but I realized that probably because of, you know, of his experience with McKinsey and he's very analytical, etc. But Ron Klain was a masterstroke, not just because he was his chief of staff for eight years. He was also the person that cleared out the Ebola crisis. He's also the person that put together the teams. That, and you couldn't ask for... I mean, he's worked for... Um, the Senate Judiciary Committee. He's got this really strong analytical background, summa cum laude from Harvard graduate, and he knows of what he speaks and knows how to make things happen. And that shows you that the grown-ups are back in charge. They're going to be serious. And if Mitch McConnell is going to try and pull his crap with cabinet appointees, there are a bunch of moderate Republicans that aren't going to play that game with him because they're just as fed up with what he's done as everybody else is. So I don't think Joe's worried about any of his cabinet appointees being slow-walked or not going through. He's going to have his team in place on day one. Yeah, his team has, has got a lot of work to do to, to, to reclaim and fix the Justice Department and, and, and get that thing functioning again. You know, he's got 50 U.S. attorneys to put in place, 57, excuse me, not just one per state, but... There are a bunch of them across the, the entire nation. And I would imagine that by the end of February, that team is going to be humming on all cylinders because Joe was vice president for eight years and he spent 36 years in the Senate. He knows what has to happen. So there's no on-the-job training required for him at all in any of this. And I think that's going to be what's critical to getting a good response to COVID and getting the economy going. Uh, I understand there's been another shakeup at uh, Downing Street. What can you talk about the, uh, shall we say, the unsettled nature of uh, Mr. Johnson's administration? Yeah. Well, uh, Dominic Cummings, the Steve Bannon of, uh, of uh, Boris Johnson, was handed his walking papers, and there was a wonderful 30-second clip of him walking out the front door of Downing Street, number 10, with his box of uh, personals in hand, headed toward the curb. And uh, I'm sure an Uber was waiting for him at the bottom of the drive there. And, uh, you know, just a blizzard of of flashlight bulbs going off in his face that evening. Um, And uh, it it, it is uh, very important that he's gone, but also very important now that Boris Johnson has been completely exposed for the buffoon that he is. Uh, you know, they're now saying that, it, you know, as long as he's in charge, a no-deal Brexit is more likely than not, which would be chaos globally and chaos here. <clears throat> so I think there's going to be probably a change at number 10 in the start of the new year, if not sooner. And 
it's it's not a good situation for the Tories right now. And I, I may have said this before, and I know I've said it on, on, on other programs. Uh, Tories, Conservatives, Republicans don't know how to govern. And that is <clears throat> always their big downfall at the end of the day. You know, Democrats will hit the ground running, hopefully with the benefit of a, of a control of the Senate with these two um, elections that are going to happen on the 5th of January. And Mitch needs to be sidelined for at least a couple of years, if not longer. <clears throat> and with him sidelined, you know, we could see D.C. get statehood. We could see Puerto Rico get statehood. That will add four Democratic seats to the Senate forever in perpetuity. And uh, that four-seat advantage is something that will be extraordinarily helpful. But if they lose in Georgia on the 5th, uh, you know, then McConnell can be the, the gum in the works. And I think you're going to see a lot of things change. And I think you're going to see Manchin brought to heel, the Democrat who's saying, I'm not going to allow this, that, and the other thing. Um, they'll just send him lots of money and buy him off, just as they always do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's going to be much easier to govern if, you've got control of, of the upper house, the, the Senate. Um, with with the, this impending, uh, oh, I don't know, let's just say threshold, we'll try to be positive about it, has, has any negotiations been ongoing uh, with the French uh, regarding channel traffic? Uh, uh, has there been any thought given to... to uh, okay, let's say that the worst case happens, that there is a crash out. Um, has has anything been done to smooth this transition? <laughs> You're a funny man, you know that, Rick? <laughs> You're a funny man. I had a hell of a writer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's one of those situations where um, everyone is whistling past the graveyard. No one is paying attention to it. Um, you know, their single biggest contribution to the idea is to, in, in Kent, which is the county where Dover is, they bought a lot of land and they're clearing it out to park a number of these uh, tractor-trailer lorries, uh, trucks, excuse me, so that, you know, they have a place to queue rather than on the M20 motorway, which is the, the, the main drag to and from Dover or through the city streets, so the, you know, they'll be told when they can leave and when they can move on. That's not going to help us on the French side, which is an admittedly bigger port, but still having the same sorts of issues with fresh fruit and veg and flowers and everything else and medicines coming to the United Kingdom from other parts of Europe into that one little bottleneck, which is Dover, France. So. I have no idea what's going to happen, nor does anybody else. Um, have they you know, been staffing up? We have all these promises of, of you know, permanent leave to remain for citizens, and everybody rushed to get that. So you know, you've got the essentially your green card um, you know, here in the UK if you're from another part of the country like most of my family is, uh, except for me. I'm the only one with the British passport here. And, um, you know, you just, you wonder what's going to happen because we need medical assistance and help 
we need nurses from EU countries, the other 25 of them, to come over here and staff our NHS. We need so much. We've lost thousands upon thousands of jobs from EU-related industries. And Airbus in North Wales makes the wings. You know, that, that plant makes the wings for the A380, the big super jumbo, as well as the A350, the workhorse, which is becoming the workhorse for Airbus and, and every other airline. And it's going to be interesting because nobody wants to buy planes from Boeing because they're trying to strip costs out of their operations so they no longer build aircraft up in Seattle. They build things in South Carolina. Hello, 737 MAX. Uh, the quality is not there. And, uh, you know, what airline wants to risk hundreds of millions of dollars or pounds or euros in lawsuits when one of these things crashes because somebody forgot to put rivets in or, you know, uh, connect something that should be connected or, you know, didn't put a software patch in correctly. Uh, I mean, it's just a... It's just a bleeping nightmare. And yet, you know, here in Cardiff, Wales, at the airport, I'm, I'm literally watching 747s from British Airways take off, fly six miles basically up the road to St. Athens Air Force Base, where they can land, but they can never take off again. And they're literally broken up for parts, for scrap, for everything. And this is, I mean, my father was a 35-year man with British Airways back when it was the British Overseas Airways Corporation or BOAC and uh, you know ran the Boston station for all those years um, and I'm so glad he didn't have to see this yes he passed in 2003 but and I miss him every day to see literally 15 747s just parked on the tarmac some of them in the BOAC livery, some of them in the One World livery, some of them in the, you know, I mean, just every color of the rainbow. And I have the still photos, and it just breaks my heart. The, you know, the moment I drove past it, it literally took my breath away. I had to circle around into the airport just to see how many were there. And I've got this one shot where you've got the nose of the One World aircraft, and you can see, you can see in the perspective shot four tails you know, other parked aircraft right there stretching back. Uh, it's just, you know, one day the 747s were flying and the big 747 maintenance facility here at British Airways Maintenance Center was this thriving place and, and now it runs the risk of being completely shuttered. I mean, yes, they'll work on the um, Dreamliners from Boeing, but they've got to completely refit that to be able to do that. So it's, it's just, it's really sad to see. Um, from what you've seen in the European press, uh, uh, I would assume that uh, some stability with the uh, uh, president-elect is uh, anticipated and looked forward to. They're making every effort to not uh, giddily wave <laughs> at the exiting Trump administration. What what kind of chatter are you hearing in the European press? Well, I mean, you know, the simple fact that the European leaders have all basically pushed Trump to the corner 
you know, they were all very quick to jump out as soon as uh, Pennsylvania was declared to congratulate the incoming president-elect. You know, Macron and even Boris Johnson, uh, you know, that they're all looking forward to a change in the temperature. In you know, the fact is that Trump did more damage to NATO and to uh, you know the the G7 and to you know the United Nations and all of Europe than one could ever possibly imagine was possible in just four years' time. And you know, from the climate accord to uh, the nuclear um, proliferation treaty to I mean, just just name it. It just goes on and on and on. And I think what's happened in Europe as well as the rest of the world is just we're exhausted. You know, he does about a dozen things every day. And, you know, we used to do a podcast, believe it or not, almost two years ago now called The Three Muckrakers. And we stopped because it was becoming such a chore. We changed the recording date to Sunday in the hopes of just trying to keep up. But we used to record it on Thursday for Friday drop. And then he did so much on Friday in the uh, takeout trash day, as well as over the weekend, that we had to push it back to a record on Sunday morning and drop it on Monday morning. And even then, it was out of date the moment it dropped. And we just thought, God, this is exhausting. And I always said to myself, if it ever became a chore, that's when I would quit. And so at episode 200, which was our last, back in March of last year, not 2019, and we're now almost coming up on March of 2021, so it is almost two years, of his antics. You couldn't possibly keep up. And I think the press corps is tired. I mean, we learned yesterday that he's going to go back to the presidential daily briefings. The briefing room will once again become what it was. He's looking at two superbly qualified women. Not sure which one is going to end up as White House communications director or press secretary, but those announcements will come soon. And I think people will generally applaud decisions to bring back more transparency instead of this scrum of reporters trying to grab his attention and scream over the rotor wash of the... uh, uh, waiting, uh, it's not even the rotor wash, it's just the fact that it's, you know, it's just the, the, the APU noise is deafening until it takes off again. It is just, you know, to see these people gathered like puppy dogs. Oh, Mr. President, please speak to me, Mr. President, say something, Mr. President. It was just playing into everything that Trump did. Uh, I'm looking forward to all that cement being ripped out of the Rose Garden. You know, and, and the, the Rose Garden go back to what it was, and it looked like something out of the Reichstag, you know, when you saw the, the work of it. I mean, that was one of the most beautiful gardens in the world, and it's a great setting for a presser and, and for, you know, the sheer weight of what was going on. That will come back, I think. And, you know, just the whole, you know, the, they, they threw the moniker Sleepy Joe. I'll throw the moniker Boring Joe out there as well, because I don't need to hear from him every day to know that stuff is getting done. And you know, the simple fact of the teams that he's put together for COVID, the teams that he's putting together for justice and for state and everything else, we'll be back to normal relatively quickly. The problem will be whether or not our allies can trust us again, whether this is just a four-year aberration 
or are we really back and engaged in what is happening in the rest of the world? Are we going to be the world leaders that we're supposed to be? On that note, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure. Janine Moloff with the Justice Report. Here she is. How are you doing tonight, Janine? I'm good. I'm just going to get straight into it. Uh, you know, last week we talked about the possibility that Trump and his GOP collaborators are trying to subvert the election by having GOP-controlled state legislators disregard uh, electors that are supposed to go to the Electoral College for Biden and claim that they can't certify the results, so then the GOP-controlled legislature would appoint Trump, loyally, Trump loyalists as electors, and that would be one way Trump theoretically um, could steal the election based in the 12th Amendment. Um, I wanted to say that, first of all, last week um, we actually scooped Cenk Uger and the Young Turks, and just about everybody else, because we were one of the first outlets to report on this. Uh, before that, it was Greg Palast, actually. So this is really what this is about, okay? Uh, people were celebrating the, you know, the Biden win. You know, thank God we're finally rid of Trump, but not so fast. The Constitution, with its really very vague language, causes some problems. And so we're going to look at this, and that's part of what's happening. So. You know, we found out on uh, Friday, or actually it was Thursday, that there were a couple of Republican, G- Republican legislators from Michigan that had been invited to a meeting with Trump, and these were the leaders in the Michigan state legislature. And that would be, that's one of the states that Trump is trying to get them to overturn the will of the voters because it was so tight. And... You know, again, this is what's happening. So um, we have this situation, and it, it, it's really just absolutely vile. So uh, these Michigan lawmakers, um, uh, let's see, their names are um, Mike Shirky, who's the state Senate, the Michigan State Senate Majority Leader, Mike Shirky, as well as the House, Michigan House Speaker, Lee Chatfield. And they met with Trump on Friday. And, you know, again, even the look, the, the, the appearance of corruption is enough to cause some problems. And so uh, Debbie Dingell, who's the uh, congresswoman, a Democratic congresswoman from Michigan, was quoted as saying, quote, this goes beyond partisan politics, and it's an attempt to subvert our democracy and undermine the will of Michigan voters. And it's true. And Dingle went on to say, quote, I would like to meet with them myself so we can just have an open and honest conversation about what's going on, and I'm waiting to see what their actions are really going to be. And, you know, once again, you have to keep in mind that Michigan was also the state where alt-righters came with full military weapons, basically stormed the, the legislature buildings, and the police and the state troopers did absolutely nothing to them. So we have this issue going on here, and this is a very, very real risk. 
okay? So, you know, what Trump's little game is this, all right? The 12th Amendment basically says, and I'll get into that a little, a little further, is that if a state is unable to certify the electors from a, you know, from a presidential election, okay, and in most states it's, you know, it's winner take all, then the state legislature gets to the, the dominating party, that is, they get to decide who the, they get to create their own slate of electors, and they don't have to necessarily represent the will of the people, the majority will, and representing the vote. And so this is what we're, you know, we're worried about. So, and it's not just uh, hyperbole. You know, conservative radio host Mark Levin um, was advocating for state legislators in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and some other swing states, and the idea to override voters and appoint their own, and have state legislator appoint their own electors to the electoral college. And you know, the problem is, regardless of technically vague constitutional language, a reasonable uh, with the Twelfth Amendment, a reasonable per- person would call this what it is: the treasonous coup against democracy and voting rights. Um, but it's not so fast. Each one of these swing states has their own little state laws. All of this is up to the state level. So Michigan law is pretty clear, and this was as reported um, by Chelsea Stahl for NBC News. And so the Michigan law, according to the Michigan Secretary of State, is that their 16 representatives to the Electoral College have to go to the candidate who won the popular vote. And that would have been Biden. So, in fact, Trump lost the popular vote by almost 150,000 votes in Michigan. Now, that, according to this report, that discrepancy would have remained even, even though there was a, an alleged clerical error that involved 367 votes in Detroit. And that's according to the Detroit Free Press. But Trump is, you could argue, Trump and his lawyers are really trying to pressure state officials which, as far as I'm concerned, should be an impeachable offense. And this all deals with this area of Wayne County in Michigan, the board, this canvassing board. And so Trump personally called one GOP board member um, who then said that she wanted to change her vote. Um, and, you know, again, the Secretary of State in Michigan said you can't. Um, individual counties have certified their votes, and the full cert- but the full state certification hasn't yet taken place. And Trump invited, as we said before, as I said before, the state Senate leader, who GOP Mike, Republican Mike Shirky, and the House Speaker, Republican Lee Chatfield. And they flew to Washington and they met they met with him on Friday. Um, neither neither Shirky nor Chatfield's office returned any calls um, from any media and including NBC. Um, the meeting took place. Now Shirky was KG and said he cited Michigan law and, you know, he said that the idea of a GOP-led legislature that's going to try and seat a Trump-friendly slate of electors is, quote, not going to happen. Well, that's nice, but yet these two Republican legislative leaders in Michigan, they shouldn't have taken the meeting in the first place, all right? It is a conflict of interest. And, you know, again, there were several legal experts um, such as Richard Primus, who's a constitutional law professor at the University of Michigan. And he wrote an op-ed, and he said, quote, if I were their lawyer, I would think twice about letting them put themselves in that kind of compromised position. He also went on to say that um, 
Under Michigan law, any member of the legislature who corruptly, whatever that means, accepts a promise of some beneficial act in return for exercising his authority in a certain way is, quote, forever disqualified to hold any public office and, quote, shall be guilty of a felony punishable by imprisonment in the state not more than 10 years, end quote. And that's what Prime is quoted in his op-ed. So, again, my point, my concern is this. It should, we shouldn't just take these Republicans at their word. They should be under investi- criminal investigation right now so that they understand that they are risking jail, at least in Michigan, if they go along with this. Now, the Michigan Attorney General, who is a Democrat, Dana Nessel, had, didn't, she didn't decline to comment to NBC News. Um, she was quoted as writing, quote, we don't comment on pending investigations. I did leave a message for the Michigan Attorney General, but I never received a reply, not that I expected to. Um, Also, another criminal law expert, University of Michigan uh, law expert, Dave Moran, said the meeting probably isn't actionable, um, but again, I I have a problem with it. Now, I'm going to have to skip through some stuff because we have so much information, it's not even funny. So the problem with Article 2, okay? And the founders of limited, uh, their limited view of democracy. So all this stuff about GOP-led legislatures creating their own slate of electors to go to the Electoral College instead of the ones that are supposed to go to Biden, it goes back to this Article 2, which says, quote, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors to vote for president as a member of the Electoral College, end quote. Well, it's really vague language here, all right? Now, there was also a federal law, the Electoral Count Act of 1887, and that adds into this problem with Article 2. It says that if a state, quote, has failed to make a choice, whatever that means, in that kind of presidential election, then electors could be chosen, quote, in such a manner as the legislature of such state may direct. In other words, It gets batted back to the state legislature of each individual state, and if it's controlled by Republicans, then you know they're going to appoint Trump loyalists in direct, uh, basically directly subverting the will of the public vote. But there's also state law, okay? Apparently, each one of these states has their own state law, which they can have to prevent this. So Michigan Election Code specifies that presidential electors, quote, who shall be considered elected, are those whose names have been certified to the Secretary of State by that political party receiving the greatest number of votes, end quote. In other words, you got the popular vote, you win. The Michigan Constitution went further, and it grants qualified citizens, quote, the right once registered to vote a secret ballot in all elections, including the election for president and vice president of the United States. So it pretty much says, look, in spite of this attempt to try and subvert the law, Michigan pretty much has protected its voters, um, short of, I'd say, violent insurrection. But it shouldn't have come to this at all. Um, Then there's an issue, because Trump won't give up, okay? He's determined to steal the election, come hell or high water. Now, Trump faces a similar problem in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, where they have some state laws, but also Arizona and Georgia. He's trying to flip the electors to him in all of these states. Now, even if he does that, he still would be 
11 electoral votes um, shy of the 270 he needs. But that doesn't stop him. Then we have to worry about the Supreme Court. Okay, and again, I know I'm going fast here. Um, Here's the thing. We've got a problem. We've got Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, and Alito who have argued that the Constitution assigned to each state legislature the exclusive power to decide how to choose presidential electors, and that that power is free from any directive or constraints of state courts or election officials or even a governor's veto power. And that particular judicial opinion, judicial uh, approach, is a very dangerous argument, and it's based on the vague wording in the Constitution, and it seems to really disregard the state law in some of these states. So again, we have some radical activists on the Supreme Court, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Alito, that have argued that the Constitution basically gave each state legislature carte blanche in deciding how to choose presidential electors and that the state legislature, basically if they're free from constraint of state courts or election officials or a governor's veto power, it means they pretty much have carte blanche, can do whatever they bloody well please. Um, now, a version of that argument was rejected by the Supreme Court majority in 2015, um, but two of the five justices that made up that majority, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Anthony Kennedy, are gone. And now we're stuck with Judge Amy. So why is Trump playing this game, right? It's not craziness. One reason if he delays certification of state election results in these key states, maybe they think he could strengthen their hand because there's some important deadlines that are set by federal law that are coming up in early and mid-December. So the one is the Electoral Count Act, and it basically says the legislature, it authorizes the legislature to step in and pick electors even after its state has held a popular vote for president if the state has, quote, there's that phrase, has failed to make a choice, end quote. Now, that phrase is so vague, could they twist it and say, well, there were so many irregularities that we can't say the state made a uh, choice, so we're not going to give it to Biden. They could try it because of the vague notion of that phrase, and then they haven't been corrected. But there was a new law review article by Justin Levitt, um, who's an election law scholar at Loyola Law School, and basically said that the Electoral Count Act, meet more clearly than the Constitution, is basically saying that, that the legislature should, is supposed to pick electors through its ordinary, its regular lawmaking process, which means passing a bill that would require the governor's signature before becoming a law. Okay, so you can see these law experts are in big disagreement with these radical conservatives on the Supreme Court. So, again, once again, Trump won't give up. His campaign, his legal strategy, they, they, judges keep dismissing these nonstop frivolous lawsuits, saying that, that they're baseless on the merits, and they are. So what, is, what does the Trump legal team do? They file basically identical ones in additional courts. They're just flooding it. And this is, I guess, trying to buy time. And if anything, these judges should, you know, basically find some way to, you know, discipline these attorneys because they're just abusing the court at this point in time. Um, Reuters on this past Thursday reported 
that the Trump campaign, one of the things they, they may believe is that state lawmakers, like in Michigan, will start to fear that if they don't act, there could be a backlash among voters in their districts that are part of the Trump base. And that could be a political backlash. It could be actual violent insurrection. We don't know. And there was a Monmouth uh, University poll, and it found, not surprisingly, that three-fourths of Trump supporters say that Biden's victory was due to fraud, even though there's no evidence to back up that claim of fraud. So and that, the, all this that I just spoke about, I'm sorry, was from ProPublica. I should have said that at the very beginning by Ian McDougall. I stand, I, I'm trying to rush through a lot of information here. And so this is something that we have to really be frightened of. We, we, sh we should not think that Trump is just being crazy or being juvenile or pouting. This is a purposeful attempt to subvert the will of the voters. And I think that it is in direct collaboration with some of his uh, brainier uh, um, allies, such as Mike Pompeo. This looks like a Pompeo strategy. Um, and, you know, once again, we, we, we're dealing with this, and we should not take it so very laying down. Now, the last bit here, I'm not going to be able to get through all of it. I'll have, we're going to continue this conversation next week, because right now we're dealing with two deadlines. There's a deadline of December 8th, I believe. Let's see now. I've got it right here. Let's see. There's a deadline of, I think it's December 8th, where the electors must be um, selected. And then on the, four, yeah, yeah, it's called the Safe Harbor Deadline. On December 8th, all, every state has to count their electoral votes and then they have to settle all election disputes, and that's called the safe harbor deadline, December 8th. And then on December 14th, the members of the Electoral College in every state need to elect the president. And there was a very long article um, in, uh, by Marjorie Cohn, which I'm going to go over next time, actually. But when this Electoral College deadline approaches, um, what would happen um, you know, if they if they miss, okay, or if they can't assign electors, you know, and that's where, you know, the Twelfth Amendment kicks in. So I'm correcting my earlier statement. Um, if the state legislatures, especially in the swing states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, if they submit what are called competing slates of electors, so that they can't actually come up with a a determinative set of electors, then the dispute would also would end up in the U.S. Congress. And this is a bad joke about democ against democracy that's contained in the Constitution's 12th Amendment. So if, if neither Biden nor Trump secure 270 electoral votes, and, and if this, then the 12th Amendment says that the House, the U.S. House, would decide who becomes president. And each state and you think, okay, that's, that's not a problem. The Democrats control the House, but it doesn't work that way. Even though the Democrats have the majority in the House, each state only gets one vote, and there's more red states than blue ones, and then Trump would win. And 
yes, Biden has 306 electoral votes that are pledged to him. But what Trump and his group are trying to do is subvert the results of the election by unpledging those delegates and having state, either state legislators, as I said last week, appoint their own slate by claiming that there's either fraud or they, they can't come up with a definitive conclusion. Or if they can't come up with it, then it could go to the House, in which case Trump would win. And if that didn't work, here's the problem. This is why this case of Bush v. Gore still matters, because then it would go to the Supreme Court. And here we've got Brett Kavanaugh who, no shock here, Kavanaugh was part of the Brooks Brothers riot in 2000. Furthermore, Judge Amy Coney Barrett was one of the lawyers helping to fight for Bush during that whole Bush v. Gore scenario. And Kavanaugh has based, he's adopted a policy that state legislatures, as I said earlier, are unrestrained in the way they select electors, and regardless of popular vote, doesn't matter, according to Kavanaugh. And Kavanaugh based his theory on former Chief Justice William Rehnquist's uh, concurrence in the case of, guess what, Bush v. Gore. And that theory, even though it has not received majority support in the high court, I mean, and, and that, that, basically that would say that, okay, states can flip the vote, according to Kavanaugh. The Republicans in control, the Michigan legislature can say, we don't care if the majority of voters in Michigan risked their lives during a pandemic to vote and voted for Biden, we're flipping it. And guess what? According to Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, under Bush v. Gore, under that theory, they could get away with it. Now, there is another theory uh, based on another case, which is Chiafalo v. Washington, and that's the electors are not free agents opinion. Now, this one was decided earlier this year. It's a unanimous SCOTUS Supreme Court decision, and it, quote, cited tradition more than two centuries old that, quote, electors are not free agents. They are to vote for the candidate whom the state's voters have chosen, end quote. So Chiafalo basically allowed the power of states to punish what they call faithless electors who don't vote in accordance with the popular vote. But what would Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch do, as well as Kavanaugh? It's a good question. And then we've got Amy Coney Barrett. All right. We have a Supreme Court that has no intention of really respecting the public vote. You know, this is an instance where we have far too many people in high positions, either in law offices, in my opinion, or as judges, or on the Supreme Court, and so on and so forth, that think of the law is the mere province of some elite, as if they're the high priest of the magic words. And that's totally out of line. The fact is the Constitution and all of our laws should be written in plain language, and it shouldn't be this convoluted process. We should be able to know that our wishes are being respected and that the law is clear. And this is an instance where we have a corrupt administration who has no intent of respecting rule of law. Uh, and again, they're getting ready. I think Trump and his cronies are, you know, basically looking at the possibility of turning troops against fellow Americans or police. I think that's why he thought, 
allegedly the reason Trump fired former Defense Secretary Mark Esper is because Esper refused to support the idea of that Trump wanted to deploy active duty troops against anti-racist protesters um, during the public protests against the lynching of George Floyd. And Esper also opposed using the Insurrection Act to do that. And I think Trump wants to be able to make sure that he holds on to power no matter what. This is all that it's about. And whether we're dealing with the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And, and that is why we have such egregious decisions. I mean, we have something such as, for instance, you know, the Eighth Amendment. It says clearly no cruel or unusual punishment. A reasonable person would take that to mean no torture because torture is cruel and unusual. And yet we had John Yu and Jay Bybee write the torture memo that technically justified torture. And this is basically another example of our lawmakers, the attorneys, the judges, and yes, the Supreme Court abusing their educations, abusing their law license, and direct defiance of an actual democracy. I know I threw a lot at everybody. We're going to continue this discussion. I'm not done with it, but next week I'm going to be going into what Marjorie, Marjorie Cohn cited in gory detail, because the only way we can fight this is if the powers that be know that we know what's going on, we know it's illegitimate, and we will press criminal charges against those attorneys that are pushing this. We will push for disbarment, whatever it takes. But the right to vote goes beyond the right to merely cast a vote and have it counted. It also means that our votes should be respected and obeyed, and that's not happening. So that's my report for tonight. All right. Thank you so much, Janine. And uh, I want to remind everyone to check out Janine's Thursday broadcasts, uh, the Environmental Justice Report. That's Thursday at 8 p.m. And of course, you'll be getting that in your inbox uh, if you subscribe to the pod. So go subscribe on iTunes. And uh, we'll see you next week, Janine, with the rest of the We'll see what happens with the, all of this stuff that uh, you talked about tonight. Hopefully, it's right. going to go out with a whimper. Hopefully, but we have to be prepared to fight. That's right. All right. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Okay, guys. So thank you again for tuning in and uh, lots of stuff to fight for as we go into the next week. I know we all wanted to take a break and uh, kind of chill out for a little while, but, you know, things change. We're going into the holidays, and, uh, you know, we just uh, we just keep keeping on. So uh, we'll keep keeping on. We'll keep seeing you next week.